Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Suzanne Mustashich on the show today. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So you've written a book called Thirsty Dragon. How did you get the idea for that book? I mean, what was the process where you said, huh, I'd like to write that? I arrived in Bordeaux 15 years ago, and I wanted to write a book. And I knew I wanted to write about the business of wine. I wanted to write about creating a market. And I was looking for a story. And then I was a correspondent for the news agency, AFP, the French news agency. So I was covering a lot of business stories. And then through all my contacts in the wine business, I already knew that Bordeaux was trying to sell wine in China, trying to build that market. And then when, essentially during the banking crisis, it's when the Chinese really first started buying on Primer, as Bordeaux is a futures commodity. So around 2008? Uh, 2009. And I was already covering the, the banking crisis in terms of wine and Bordeaux. And it just I, I just sensed it. I sensed that China had arrived, you might say, just in the nick of time. And then the story started developing. In 2010, I started writing a column in China. And I just watched the story unfold. I think this is the story I have to write. It came to me. I mean, I was looking, actively looking for a story, but it was just this cast of characters. And I, I come from a television and screenwriting background. And I, you know, I wrote a movie. It was a thriller. So I look for... I look for suspense, I look for adventure, I look for interesting characters. And I had it right there in front of me. So, but what did that scene look like in 09? I mean, what was going down? It was, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. You have people, you have customers, faithful customers who've ordered Bordeaux wine, sometimes for generations, but definitely faithful customers in Belgium and everywhere, you know, around the world. Sometimes overnight, they didn't have a bank anymore. They didn't have a credit line anymore. They couldn't order. They couldn't honor their contracts. Not that they didn't want to. They couldn't. And everybody knew that the banking crisis was hitting restaurants, hitting hotels. Restaurants couldn't pay for their wine. It was a catastrophe for the wine business. And Bordeaux, the way it sold, of course, the chateaus sell to these middlemen called negociants, which are wine merchants. And it's their job, there's over 300 of them, to go off and sell that wine. Well, if their customers can't buy the wine or can't even pay for the wine they might have already taken, they're left 
they're in a really bad situation and they need a new customer. So when I saw that, I just, you know, I, I, I talked to these people a lot. This is what I cover. And they were, you know, they would just, they would come and tell me, my God. And I mean, no one was really talking about it publicly, but they're like, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And who knows when this is going to end? Who knows when the recovery is going to happen? It's not that people didn't think America would recover or that the banks would open in Europe. No, no one thought that this was the end of the world. But they themselves have credit lines. They themselves have loans. And if they don't order wine from the chateaus, they lose their allocations. Okay, there's this whole allocation system in Bordeaux. So the negotiations are left like, what are we going to do? So if you pull out, then that could affect 10 years from now what you can buy. It affects next year. Even if times are bad, it affects next year. And next year might be an incredible vintage. So that's the year where you make all your money. And then maybe the next two vintages are kind of lousy. So you got to hold on to that wine because it's not going to sell right away. When I say lousy, it's not say lousy, but maybe it's not this spectacular vintage that's going to attract investors and speculators. It's a wine that's ready to drink, young. It'll be sold once it's bottled, which is not always the case in board, obviously. So the, the negotiants need those spectacular vintages, which they sell for a lot of money, to bankroll the other vintages. It's like the movie business. One blockbuster, a lot of money will bankroll nine other kind of it, mediocre exactly. films. Exactly, and you wait for the next blockbuster. But there, where was the blockbuster? And even if there was a blockbuster, who was going to pay for it? Who had any money? Uh, and what happened was, the, of course, there was a lot of pressure on the, the first gross, on the top chateaus, to lower their prices. Because at the time, you know, we thought that 2005 was as high as it could go in Bordeaux, the 2005 vintage. And so this is the 2008 vintage going on sale in the spring of 2009. And the first growth wines came out between 90 and uh, 110, which was a great deal. What happened was the few customers, Chinese customers or Hong Kong customers who did buy on Primer made a lot of money. More than doubled. And word got out then that next year that if you buy Bordeaux on Premier, you make huge profits. And suddenly these speculators just arrived. It, it felt like it was overnight. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. This looks like overnight. And everybody's writing the, these sort of China miracle stories. I'm like, no, these guys have been slaving away to build this market for decades. And finally it's paying off right when they need it. But it never would have happened if Bordeaux wasn't already on the radar in China. And it was on the radar because Bordeaux had been trying to sell wine to China since the late 1700s. This was a very long game. But at the same time, Bordeaux was reducing prices because of response to what was happening fiscally in Europe and the United States. Absolutely. And the Chinese buyers saw an opportunity to make some serious dough because those weren't the same conditions that they were experiencing in China. Exactly. Oh, well, exactly. And they, and they felt their strength. They felt their strength. They felt the power of their economy. Absolutely. And you really saw that in the next couple of years. Just a sort of swagger amongst the Chinese, the big Chinese buyers. Especially the ones buying for conglomerates. So it felt like the American market for Bordeaux essentially sort of dried up. And that some of the players at the table essentially cashed in their chips and said, no, we're not interested in buying. They couldn't. They already had wine in the pipeline. They didn't have to. And they also just felt like the prices had gotten too high. 
They weren't sure American consumers were going to follow. Um, but mostly they had wine in the pipeline they could. And, and then on the Bordeaux side, you'd have some importer in Chicago saying, yes, I, I'll take my 20 cases or 50 cases, but can you give me a price break because it's really tough here right now? And say they want it for 10 to 12 a bottle. And you've got someone from China ordering a container, a couple thousand cases at 18 a bottle. So, of course, the chateau owner is going to say, uh, yeah, sorry about your troubles in Chicago, but I've got somebody in Shanghai who's paying top price in quantities you'll never buy in a, uh, 10 years. So I can see why Bordeaux was tempted to shift its focus on China. But my gut instinct, maybe it's because I'm American and I believe in the American economy. But I thought, you can't forget, uh, you're, this is a a developed market. It's a growing wine market. You can't just turn your back on America. But nobody was really listening to me, honestly. I did write it. <laughs> I did say it. I repeated it. And eventually I started hearing it being repeated, whether or not it's because of me or not. I have no idea. I don't know that I have that kind of influence. But I was definitely saying, you don't. Know, it doesn't make sense to leave a market you've been building for several decades. Why price yourself out of that market? But that's precisely what happened. What were the precursors to this arrival of the Chinese buyers in 09? I mean, what was happening in China before that to set the stage for that to happen? Well, first of all, there was always wine in China. Since the 1800s, there was wine in China. In the late 1700s, a Bordeaux shipper tried to sell wine in China, Bulgari, which is still a, a shipper of wine today. They sent a big ship to China, and wine was one of the things they tried to sell. I've read in the archives of the French, essentially pulling out their hair because they couldn't figure out how to sell wine in China. They had nothing to trade for it. The French didn't drink tea. They weren't in the opium trade, which was dominated by the English. And there were a lot of American ships. I've looked at a lot of the, we never talk about it, but there were a lot of Americans involved as well. So for every, and I'm pulling this, fig, it's in the book, I'm pulling the figure now just out of my head, for every couple hundred British ships in a port, you have maybe two or three French ships. It takes okay. two to tango, and there wasn't a product that the Chinese could sell to the French. No. In exchange. Right. But the British were there, and they were taking wine in. And so they really, they cornered the market. So it was, it was Americans and Brits and other expats in the treaty ports drinking wine, drinking Bordeaux. And there was even missionaries who had, I found traces of missionaries importing Bordeaux wine to drink, um, or family had sent over, or something like that. So wine had been trying to seep into China for a long time, but it just sort of got to the treaty ports, and never any further. So it's the expat community, some of the more sophisticated Chinese who had contact with the diplomatic community and the business community. And then there were overseas Chinese who had been called upon to come back and strengthen China. We're talking the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and tried to develop a bit of a wine industry in China. But it really, it all came to an end with 49, with the Communist Revolution. So anything that happened in wine until 79 was, had nothing to do with fine wine. 78, 79 is when the Chinese first started talking about joint ventures and opening up. Like doing some work with Western governments and, and well, companies. Yeah, they needed investment. They needed investors to come in. They needed technology. They needed an expertise. They didn't have it. So right as China's opening up, they sent to Davos some Chinese officials looking for people to come and invest. 
And there was a 31-year-old Frenchman from the Remy Martin family, which is now Remy Cointreau. And he was like, I'm going to go to China. I'm going to go make either cognac or wine or something in China. And it was a crazy idea, a totally crazy idea. And he, he did it. He told his family, this is what I'm going to go do. And for whatever reason, said, yeah, you go for it. And he did. He found his contacts. He, it was just it was an incredible trek just to get, to get to Beijing. And then one thing led to another. And he found that there was an interest from Tianjin, a port, support for Beijing, the historical port. And this is where there was some alcohol production and some wine production. And through a lot of, it was quite an adventure, and I talk about it in the book. He ends up there, and one thing led to another, and it became Dynasty Wine. So that was, he wanted to be the first joint venture, and it was the second but he did it really quickly. It was, it was a handshake within, I think, three months. He went there in October, November, and a couple months later, it was, he was ready to go. Essentially the first French joint venture with China. Yeah, it was the second joint venture period and the first French. But it was it's really right there at the start of China opening up. So wine was already, I mean, it was a tiny project, a very tiny project, and he had no idea that it was going to become his huge success. But it was there. At the same time, you have a trader in Hong Kong named Thomas Yip, who had already worked in the wine business in Hong Kong. And he was in a position to supply for the, a peninsula joint venture. Which is and, a group of hotels. Yeah. And it was the first five-star, I must say five-star, but joint venture, hotel joint venture. And again, it was actually owned by overseas Chinese from the Bay Area. And then, of course, the Peninsula Groups has a long, long history in China. So it was sort of natural for that to happen, and he was the wine person, and he already had lots of contacts with Bordeaux, and he loved Bordeaux, and he understood that the people going to this hotel were going to be expats. Not the locals. No, the locals had no money. There was no market for wine amongst local Chinese. Even government officials didn't have any money. No one had any money. But the officials needed something to serve to people they were wooing to China, that they wanted to invest in China. Or these and joint ventures. Exactly. For these people ventures. are coming in and they need to entertain them and make them feel like they have something in China that they're going to be interested in. And then the five-star hotel expat community has always been a market for Bordeaux wine. That's how Bordeaux goes into a market. They take their 1855 classification, they take the first gross, and that's how they break into a market. And they come in as a luxury item. And they brand Bordeaux that way. And it appeals to people. They, they like the idea that there's this historical estate, it's luxury, it's sort of the very best of French living. It appeals to be on many, many levels. And for the Chinese, it was the perfect, it was a perfect wine for receiving, but also giving. They always talk about losing face or saving face, but you, you need to give the person a gift worthy of them, and you don't want to risk embarrassment. Because it also shows that the fact that you gave that gift, and it's a respectful gift, also raises your own position. And it was just the, the first gross, it was in particular with Chateau Lafitte, it was a no-brainer. They couldn't mess up. 
It's and you perfect. say in the book that Yep made a real crucial purchase of 82 Lafitte at, at an interesting yeah. time. Yeah, he did. And it, it came about because, of course, things weren't going so well in, in Bordeaux. And the chateaus were having a hard time selling their wine. And there was a big stockpiles of wine in the cellars that had to, to go. And so their deals were being made. And Christophe Roubault-Sals, who was working for Sévé Béger at the time, was, had this, you know, a thousand cases, and what's he going to do with it? And Yip was really smart. He knew this was a deal. He, and that was something, that was a volume he could really do something with. And he took it, you know, he was getting requests. He had been involved in supplying to China right from, as it opened up. He had the contacts. There weren't that many, you know, there weren't, there was, I don't know how many people were on his contact list, but I'm thinking it was a very, very small list of people. But suddenly he had the right thing for them. It was just perfect timing. It was perfect timing. And it was a product in the hands of somebody who really understood wine, who loved it, who loved the product, but was a very good businessman. And it helped plant the seed for the rise of the Lafitte brand in Bordeaux, but also Bordeaux. Oh, completely. It just, it meant that Bordeaux stood for quality. It stood for luxury. It stood for success, sophistication. It stood for all of these things that as China's economy grew and income grew and people aspired to middle-class luxuries and upper-middle-class luxuries, it was something they could understand. And as has been explained to me by many people, which we even now see now as like Starbucks coffee in China, even if they can't afford, say, the trip to France or they can't even afford a case of wine, they can afford a bottle of wine. And that glass, that chance to drink it is like they're sharing in that lifestyle. Even if they go back and the rest of their, they only make very little money a month, they can share in that lifestyle for that glass of wine. So who are some of the other players that in the beginning were really shaping the game in China? Dave Henderson. He was there again for joint ventures. It's all the people who were there for joint ventures. So it was Dynasty, it was Remy Martin, with the Yips. It was Lafitte right away. It was there. They were sending Christophe Ceylon, who's the CEO, over to China. He was right there in the beginning. It was he wasn't just hanging out in Paris and Bordeaux waiting for other people to to build the market. You said that in the book that Lafitte had a different model in their approach to negotiants than some of the other producers. Yeah, and I know that they're rethinking that today, but and I, I can't tell them what to do, but I do. Th there's no question that they've built a lot of goodwill by distributing their their wine widely across the Place de Bordeaux, the the trading platform for Bordeaux's classified gross. They give an allocation, so that's a, a quantity of wine, a certain number of cases, usually it's measured in cases, to a lot of different negotiants, who then take that and they sell it to their customers all over the world. And so it just and they use Lafitte to sell a lot of other wine. Because, of course, you want the Lafitte, but maybe you don't want all those other wines, right? Not that they're bad wines, but they don't have a big brand name. It's just, it's not as easy to sell, maybe. Or as easily interchangeable, say, with another equally fine wine. But if you want that Lafitte, you're going to take all those other wines as well. People want to say, they don't want to talk about it. They say, oh, we shouldn't talk about that. But that is the way the wine is sold. And that is how the negotiants do their business. So Lafitte spreads a lot of goodwill, and it means that it makes that wine available to a lot of small stores, wine stores that you wouldn't, that wouldn't normally probably get access to that kind of wine. It makes them 
feel connected to Bordeaux. They're invested in Bordeaux. And it sells a lot of other Bordeaux wines. But it's what put Lafitte there in the beginning in China. It started to have a name recognition that stood apart from the rest of Bordeaux. Oh, right away. Yeah, right away. And because of... Yeah, but also Henderson, he was actually one of the, he was the first importer directly into China. And he, got, he went to go see Ceylon, who said, okay, yeah, you can take the other Lafitte wines. Because there's Lafitte, and then that wine group owns other vineyards, of course, and they have their own brand wine they sell. And so Lafitte and their certain Bordeaux wines are sold on the Place de Bordeaux, but the other ones are sold by the Lafitte group. And so he was working with Henderson, and Henderson had formed a partnership with a longtime expat, the son of a missionary growing up in China. And they opened on Tiananmen Square, the first wine store. It's still, uh, they're still going in China. And he's been directly involved with building the wine market in China. He's been really important. But they're also just negotiants who have been prospecting. Geniste is one of the big companies that's over there prospecting. And they just, they go there, they find, it's usually a hotel. They try to get the wine into the hotel on the wine list. And they do winemaker dinners. And it's not a very, in China in the 80s, it was not a comfortable place to be. It was not an easy place to be. But they go there and they convince people to drink Bordeaux. But it was the Yip family that identified Carrois de Lafitte as a potential financial opportunity. Well, actually, they just... Vincent, Thomas's son, he had never heard of Carawad. It wasn't widely exported. It wasn't what we think of it as, as it is today. It didn't have the name it has today. And he just needed a less expensive option on his list. And he saw that it was made by Lafitte. And so he's like, so what's this wine? And see, it's a good price and maybe I can get some. That's really how it happened. And then he ended up having very large allocations of that. And, and of course, the Yips were incredibly influential in getting Carawad. The name it has today in China, Hong Kong. Which became a big deal. Oh, it was a huge deal. Yeah. And there's this been the whole phenomena that I think was led by Carawad of the second wines becoming very expensive and highly sought after, especially if you don't, maybe you can't afford the first wine or the first growth, but you can afford the second wine. And of course, the second wines are made by the same team from the same estate. So the quality is very high. But I think Carawad led that trend that we have today. And it helped that it said Lafitte on the label. Yeah. If it hadn't had Lafitte on the label, I don't think it would be the success it is today. And actually, it's this little symbol, the five arrow symbol, that is what really counts in China. Oh, is that true? The yeah. the Lafitte symbol? The, yeah. the family <laughs> symbol? Yeah, absolutely. That's Because you got to think about it, until pretty recently, it would have been unlikely for a mainland Chinese person to be able to read the label. That was a real stumbling block. And they speak in pictograms anyway. Like that's part of their language. Yeah, they just understand that, 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 as you say, that speaks to them. And it's very important. It was easily recognizable. They're like, oh, okay. And it it was just, it was stamp of quality and prestige and sophistication. I think that was a big appeal of wine. So I guess what I'm saying is that that all this, the success Bordeaux had in 2009 was because they'd laid, they'd paved the way for it for since 79, if not before. They also had gotten Hong Kong back. What really helped was that Hong Kong has always been a trading platform for China. It's been a way to get goods into China and goods out of China ever since the British set up camp there. And the Hong Kong Chinese 
have been extremely influential in building that trade. And so the Yips were part of that. They had the expertise. They understood Chinese culture, Chinese language. They understood the needs of China, and yet they also could operate with the West. So the, the overseas Chinese are phenomenally important in building the wine trade and building China. And what are specifically the differences in conditions between the Hong Kong wine market and the mainland Chinese market? Completely different. Hong Kong is a mature market because of the long-time British presence there. They brought that that with them. They brought their knowledge of fine wine, the the food and wine pairing, everything. It's a completely mature market, but it's also highly regulated. It's considered quite safe in terms of counterfeiting and, and fraud. The Hong Kong police and customs are considered quite vigilant, which we know that's not the case in mainland China. So it's considered a safe place to do business. It's considered hospitable to wine. And there's a deep knowledge. So it's two completely different markets. And at the same time, there's a difference in taxation between Hong Kong, mainland China, and then Hong Kong and London, right? Yeah. Once he eliminated the duties, it opened the door to this flood of wine. Suddenly, Hong Kong was the trading platform. That's what they wanted to be, and they succeeded very, very quickly. But it also became a platform for smuggling into the mainland. And that's enormous. It's because the the import duties are assessed not based on volume, but on value. Which So, of course, you're going to smuggle. Of course, you're going to undervalue the wine. That's just, if the Chinese were serious about getting rid of smuggling, they would place the duties on volume, not value. Because you've related stories in your book about people placing less expensive wines at the front and back of the container. So if you open the door, you see the less expensive wine, but in the middle is all this really expensive wine, and they value it at a lower level so that they can pay less duty. Yeah, definitely. But they also just, it goes in in truckloads across the border, illegally smuggled. It goes in tunnels, it goes in trucks, it goes in car. Into mainland China, from Hong Kong. Yeah. There's a mule system. Yeah, a very sophisticated well-oiled machine. <laughs> if you, you know, they say in Hong Kong that if there's a job to do, there's someone to do it. And they're very proud of that. And from the Hong Kong perspective, it's really not their problem. The wine comes in legally into Hong Kong without duties. The Chinese want to assess duties. It's their, it's, that's their business. It's very interesting dynamic between Hong Kong and the mainland. But there's no question that the smuggling is well-developed. You know, you just place your order in Hong Kong, and then they, it's delivered to you in the mainland. Several times in this story, the government declaring something, whether subtly or not so subtly, has been a huge factor in the development or the retraction of the wine trade in China. That's absolutely true. It's part of the precarious nature of doing business in China, and I don't think that will change. Look at what the, the anti-corruption policy Since 2013, I mean, that the wine trade dried up. The fine wine, expensive, bling wines, that just dried up because of a government policy. And that's definitely the challenge of doing business in China. You can't foresee what's going to happen. And there could just be a policy change, a regulatory change, and you might find yourself on the wrong side of it. Or something that's permissible today might not be permissible next week. So that is the nature of building a market in China. But fairly early on in the development of that market this time around, mm-hmm. what happened was that they said, look, we don't want you drinking the local spirit that's distilled from wheat because we'd like you to eat the weeds. And we're mm-hmm. having problems with hunger. 
And so we'd like you to move into wine. And the government got behind wine and specifically red wine, right? Yeah. Actually, it was for, I think it was for really two reasons. One, oh, there was multiple reasons. One, they were looking for something that could be more than just, well, because say table grapes, you grow the grape and it becomes a table grape, right? A wine grape becomes wine tourism, potentially exports further down the road. It attracts foreign investment. It's a, a product with many benefits. And so the wine grape appealed to them for a variety of reasons. The other thing was, as you said, it's people are starving. They need grain to feed people. They still have a lot of people, millions of people in poverty, abject poverty. And they needed to get people off of grain-based alcohol. And also, there's problems with the grain-based alcohol. Sometimes it's not really baiju. It's just some awful chemical in there. And it's extremely bad for their health. Plus, there's no question that drinking high-proof alcohol is not conducive to your health, not in the quantities that are being consumed. So the government, for health reasons, they wanted to steer people away from uh, the baiju, but for also for food reasons, food shortage reasons, for building the economy, as far as wine tourism and foreign investment. There was a lot of things attracting them to wine. And then there was in 1991, I believe it was, the 60-minute story on how red wine was good for your health. It just sort of gave them the perfect opportunity to say to the Chinese people, see, on top of that, we don't want you to drink this drink that you really love, that's a national drink. We want you to drink this foreign drink over here that you might not even like, and because it's good for your health, and it's officially approved now, and it's good for China. And that's what, you know, that was 96, that's what really opened the door to red wine in China. And then, of course, there was the Asian financial crisis that kind of cut short. I think the whole boom would have happened then in the late 90s if it hadn't been for the Asian financial crisis. But at the same time, if it had happened in the late 90s, America was going through a financial boom. And so they wouldn't have been able to capitalize on that low price point at the time. That's true. It wouldn't have attracted the speculators, maybe. But I think there might have been a, a little bidding war. That could have been very interesting, actually, because you would have had Americans flush with cash, the Chinese not so flush, but wanting the product. That could have been a very interesting time for Bordeaux. But it feels like there was a real opportunity for foreign brands, specifically for Bordeaux brands, to enter the Chinese market. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bordeaux still does a great business, even though the, you know, the market for the top wines collapsed when the bubble burst, where the speculators and speculators fled. Uh, there's still a demand now, a growing demand even in recent months, for entry-level Bordeaux everyday drinking Bordeaux. And that's really important. It's, it's actually similar to what's going on in China in general. You know, the Chinese are trying to shift their economy to a consumer economy, a slower, long-term, steady growth. And it's the same thing for wine. The Bordeaux that's being imported is consumer wine. It's not for speculators. It's not for investors. It's what people, young people, young professionals order when they go online and they want to try a new wine. And that's fantastic. That's great for Bordeaux. It's great for imported wine in general because it means people are actually uncorking this wine and drinking it, which was not the case before. Because it, at some level, what it sounded like before was that this was an audience of expats and government officials courting investment. And now there's been a move where regular consumers are drinking wine, although very different wine. In their homes. Is that true? That's true. Although, you don't forget the whole speculative bubble when all the tycoons arrived. 
And those are the people, you know, buying up the chateaus and everything. But so all the speculators and fly-by-night traders arrived after the 2008 vintage in 2009. And it went through, well, things started to collapse in July 2011, and it went downhill since. It was a very... That's a quick run. It was a quick run, but it was a big, big bubble. I mean, it was just the demand was enormous. And just literally thousands of wine traders sprouted up. And these are people who were, who were dealing in electronics and carpets and leather and auto parts. I mean, everything you can imagine suddenly went into wine. And tycoons were, of which there are many, many, many in China, wanted wine. They wanted Bordeaux wine. They wanted classified gross. The demand was just ferocious. And so all this wine is going into China. And then, of course, prices went too high with the 2010 vintage. And you think that that was a reaction to this occurring? Do you think that the chateau owners were like, yeah, well, I mean, it's good vintage and we can price it pretty high because there's... They really thought the Chinese would pay any price. And they didn't understand that people weren't drinking these wines. These were investments. And the minute you're not making a profit on it, they're going to walk away. They're going to walk away. They don't want to lose money, and they don't want to feel cheated. That was one thing that was said to me over and over again from my Chinese sources. Don't want to feel cheated. They get very angry and will turn very quickly away from an investment if they feel cheated. And, and they, they just wisened up. You know, at the time, they didn't really know how, for instance, to look at Wine Searcher and see what the price of the same wine was in New York or Paris. Of course, people in New York and Paris are sitting back going, are they crazy paying that? They can get it for a whole lot less here. Of course, they wisened up with the internet. Pricing became very transparent. I mean, is it because my thing was like, well, maybe they can't use it there. Like maybe they can't use all the internet services. Well, certainly there might have been, that might have been a problem originally, but now, now they can. It's completely changed in the last few years. There's a real, how they get access to the information, I'm not sure. But they do have access to the information. There's a, it's been a major influence, the price transparency available on the internet. And they're just they're learning, they're learning English, they're learning French, they're traveling. They come here and they see the same wines for a whole lot less. They've just China has changed so much in the last couple of years. And one thing I've always been impressed by is how quickly things change, how quickly they learn. It's amazing. It's amazing how resilient. I know this is an incredible generalization, but how resilient and creative and and fast learners just absorb information so quickly. And the internet has played, obviously, a big role in that. And the government, I guess, does not worry about censoring that information about wine prices because it's widely available. But it wasn't when the boom started. And now the, they get, they're very, very clever at finding out what the prices are elsewhere in other countries and that's what they're willing to pay they're not going to pay more but then we're really the big the big turning point was the anti-corruption anti-bling and that starts about 2013 well there was already talk about 2012 and but then 2013 it really kicked into high gear 2012 they were thinking okay this is coming but it's going to be short-lived there's a you know there's a a shift in government, and whenever a new government comes in, a new leader comes in, they clean out and get rid of their enemies, right? And so at the time, people were just saying, oh, don't worry, you know, the demand for 
the top, the most expensive wines, it's going to kick right back again. This will be like a six-month thing. Exactly. Everybody told me the same thing. Ah, this is, it'll be business as usual. No one could conceive of doing business in China without alcohol. Alcohol had been part of banquets and deal-making since China opened up. No one could conceive of it with a dry negotiation. And, you know, sometimes these executives, these Chinese executives have a couple of dinners in a night. I mean, they, the ability to consume alcohol was part of a job requirement. So the thought that the government would cut back on this was just inconceivable. No one thought it could happen. That's what really hurt Bordeaux. I think that the, the free fall that happened would not have, we wouldn't have hit quite so low if there hadn't been the anti-corruption. But then people, you know, people end up in jail. They, they lose their lives. They or... disappear. Yeah. They disappear or they commit suicide because they know the authorities are going to arrive at their offices later that day. It became, this is life and death. They, they're all their, their money, their belongings, their properties confiscated. This is very serious. So you don't want to be seen with something that's going to raise any alarms. And if Bordeaux is, a luxury item, even though it might not be. It might be a little cru bourgeois. It might be just a nice family estate from Saint-Emilion that costs 20, 30 bucks. You know, just a perfectly not a bling wine in any way, just a really nice, fine wine at a reasonable price. Other people might not know that. They just see Bordeaux. Oh, God, don't be caught with Bordeaux. And so that just dried up the demand. And plus, there was so much wine on the market. No one had to import anymore because it wasn't being... It wasn't being consumed a lot of the time. I, there's somebody I interview in the book, and they gave me great access. Uh, I did change their names to protect them. But I was asking them about their, who they were buying wine from. And they did buy a lot of Bordeaux directly from negociants. But they also just bought it back from government officials. So on the one hand, they're supplying people who are currying favor from government officials. And sometimes it's a lower-level official needing a favor from someone higher up. Sometimes it's an entrepreneur. You know, there's many different levels of business entertainment that goes on in China, but they needed wine. And so they would then give it as gifts. Well, the, these officials could never possibly consume or need the amount of wine they were receiving in their offices every week. And so they would sell it back to the wine traders. And because they received it for free, it's always a profit for them. So the wine trader can get it at a good price, still resell it for a profit. So it's just a circular traffic of uncorked wine, wine that is unsold on the market. So that wine is in China. There was just a great story in the Chinese press just recently about somebody with a warehouse of wine that I think he, again, I'm pulling this number out of my memory. I think it was around 50 a bottle. They couldn't sell it for 50 a bottle anymore. So he, it was just sitting unsold, probably in an unheated warehouse, and just sitting there. And the guy had left the business, I think. So there's, there's a glut of wine on the Chinese market that has to be absorbed. And once that's been absorbed, there'll be, the demand will, will come back. It'll be a stabler market because a lot of the speculators have left. These sort of fly-by-night traders have left because there's no quick profits. And hopefully what it's left is a much more professional and stable, reliable distribution of wine, which is good for everybody. It's good for American vintners. It's good for the Italians. It's good for everybody if that happens. 
And you think that's going to be the outcome? Oh, yeah, I do think so. Because the only people who are going to stay in the business are ones with reliable distribution and who can, can assure the distribution and the sales of wine. Otherwise, there's no profit in it. But how is business done? I mean, did it dry up? Is it, you know, done over paper now as opposed to dinner? Or, I mean, how are, is wine still a part of a business well, transaction? It's done in private clubs. There are private clubs where it's done. It's done very carefully. Very, very carefully. It's been a problem for the hotels and restaurants. I've talked to sommeliers who are looking for inexpensive wine. So you're saying that it's done in private clubs so that not everyone can see what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Because they're really afraid of what's called with the translation is a flesh searchers, peoples with an iPhone, you know, taking a photo and then putting it on the internet and searching out who the official was or who the different people were and what was the item that was being consumed or, or purchased or worn, depends what kind of product you're talking about. Almost like a paparazzi thing, but for fraud. For fraud. Yeah. For excessive living, for um, luxury living. And there's a huge, they're like amateur cyber detectives and people are really afraid of it. So it's done very, very discreetly. Essentially those big name wines have moved out of the hotel market then. Yeah, they're not. In fact, it's very, even in Hong Kong, it's very difficult to sell those wines. They're on the list but from what I'm told, there that no one's no one's ordering them. And that starts in late 2012, and it's now 2015, and it's still the same situation. Or it's a, a bad situation for the most expensive wines. However, there's a demand for what I call the heart of Bordeaux's production, which is the other, you know, several thousand chateaus who produce really great wine at affordable prices. The demand for that's rising. And that's really what, when Bordeaux breaks into a market with the 1855 classification, they're building a market for those thousands of other chateaus. That is their objective. They sell the classified gross and they're happy to sell it. But always, you know, unless they're a negociant who only deals in classified gross, they're always thinking of selling the, the cru bourgeois and the small family estates, the brand wines, they're, they're what you call a negotiant wine. It's wine they, they blend themselves, which they buy from lots of different estates and suppliers. That's what they're hoping to get into that market. And that's what China's buying now. But it feels like they also build it for the rest of the world of wine. And so how much of American or Italian or Burgundy or Champagne, how much of that is part of the market now? Now that Bordeaux set the stage, are those players showing up more and more? Yeah, and I've and actually there's been people like Washington State has been getting their wines in there now for quite a long time. California, some is because the Chinese are traveling, and when they travel and if they go to a wine region, it builds up a demand for those wines. It just it enters into sophisticated popular culture. You might say there's stories about it in their press, in their magazines. So then they want to drink those wines. But absolutely, it's been a great opportunity. The 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 work that Bordeaux did has created a demand for premium wines, for fine wines from everywhere. And the Chinese are very similar to Americans and they're very open to new products. I find a lot of similarities with the American market. What are others? How the idea you drink imported wine if you're truly sophisticated, you kind of turn up your nose at the domestic wine, which of course has changed in America. But originally, I think that's certainly how it was. And there's an informality to dining as well and drinking wine that it reminds me of America. I can remember being in China and where some Bordeaux wine producers were telling Chinese 
how to drink their wine. And they'd say, oh, well, with the cheese course, I'm looking at them going, they don't eat cheese. They don't like cheese. And you're trying to, not only you want to sell them a drink that they've never consumed, that they might not really like. And on top of that, you want them to eat something that they can't even buy. And if they did buy it, they're not going to like it. So it's, it was, I was like, hello, look at your market. Why not try and pair it to a food that they actually consume that's available instead of creating yet another hurdle for them? And talking about courses, that's not how the Chinese eat. They have a like a lazy Susan in the middle of the, the table. Things just arrive whenever the chef decides to send it to the table. There's no order to anything. And it's very informal. And a lot there might be is kind of a more a sweet and sour dish, a more savory dish, a very spicy dish. It's all mixed up, and you got to have a wine that's going to somehow go with pretty well with everything. And is Bordeaux that wine? I mean, a lot of times here we don't really think of Bordeaux as a bridge wine. I'll tell you, it goes very well with some Chinese cuisine, not so well with other. And I think a really nice, dry, full-bodied white wine goes well with a lot of, a lot of Chinese food. In fact, I did, was doing a wine and food pairing in Hong Kong. In man, it must have been 2010, 2011. And I'd asked them to do a, a Bordeaux pairing for me. And the sommelier said, well, now, Suzanne, you asked me to do, to do Bordeaux. And so I did. But you know what? I got to show you what I really love. And he brought out a Washington State white wine. Like, how do you even know about Washington State white wine? And he was like, you know, you know they, they were over in Hong Kong, went to a tasting. This is fantastic. This goes well with you know, what we're eating. And so I think there's just this, there's this openness and there's a sophistication to Chinese middle-class palate. We've got to remember that, in fact, the people who can afford imported wine, it's a very small part of the Chinese population. Most people just don't have that kind of money. But even people with very modest incomes are drinking red wine now, domestic red wine. But eventually they'll get to the point where they can afford sort of the best Chinese wine, and then they'll, they'll switch over to an imported wine if it's in the same price range. And that's what we're seeing right now. And that's great for people. That's great for American vintners. It's great for everybody. So what I said when I was listening to these Bordeaux producers trying to sell their wine as well as cheese and a four-course meal served separately in a way that would just not happen, I started talking to Chinese journalists and said, you know, in America, we don't necessarily drink wine that way. And when our friends come over, we might open our best bottle and just serve it with some little snacks or just serve it because we want to share our best bottle, just like that, a big, big, full-bodied red wine. We don't have to start with a glass of white wine or a champagne or something like that, which, which we do do in Bordeaux. I said, you can bring out your best bottle and share it with your friends. That's okay. There's no rule book to this. It's whatever makes you happy. It's how you want to share this with your friends. And... I, that's actually how I got the job writing the column, the wine education column in China is because I was saying that at a dinner party in Hong Kong. And I didn't realize it, but across the table from me was the editor of a, of a wine magazine. But does that mean that there's an opportunity for white Bordeaux in China that might go better with the food? No, I, I think unfortunately for Bordeaux, white wine growers, there is an opportunity there. It's, there's a real push from the sweet wine producers in Bordeaux. And they're working really, really hard on food and wine pairings and promoting their wines. And I think there's an opportunity there for them because they have some great wines, especially the sweet wines that have a bit of acidity 
those do really well with some Chinese cuisines. So, but I think, I think that there's actually more of a, a move towards white wines from northern regions. The Chinese sommeliers are very, they're very sophisticated. And they're, there's so many people trying to sell wine in China that they have quite a choice. And I think you need the acidity that you find in northern, northern white wines. And they know that Loire exists. They know that Germany exists and produces wine. They, they know Burgundy. And Italian wines are doing really well now in China. So you take out the gift-giving market and the government business market because of the anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. Things are a little tenuous with new business because of an economy where who knows what the hell is going to happen with the stock market. I mean, I think, right? And then at the same time, you have all of these options vying for attention in China now that maybe don't have the history of vying for that attention that Bordeaux does. Does that all spell that the Bordeaux-China relationship was more like a fling that may be over? I mean, is it kind of done? No, and I, and I, I don't say no just because I live in Bordeaux and, and I've written a book about Bordeaux and I don't want to see a demise to that relationship. No, I think Bordeaux has an incredible brand value even so. Even with everything that's gone on, it's still an incredible brand in China. And now that people are discovering affordable Bordeaux, and it's and these are wines that get great ratings, great critiques, they it's sort of validated by well-known palates, they're buying those wines. There's a real demand for those wines, but it's and it's real consumption. So is the I think the infatuation with Bordeaux is over. There was this crazy infatuation, especially with Lafitte. And, and that is gone. I think that is over. But what's been replaced by a more reasonable relationship, one based on more mutual understanding, I think. And it's based on a more long-term affection that isn't unreasonable infatuation. Does that make sense? It's, well, does Bordeaux still have the luxury lifestyle card to play? I mean, does it still have that association sure. better than any other region? Yeah, of course. Of course it does. That's why Chinese tycoons and conglomerates keep buying chateaus in Bordeaux. That hasn't stopped. That has not stopped. Despite everything, that hasn't stopped. And where do you see that going? I mean, are these people going to be in there for the long term, or are they looking to flip those chateaus for a better price soon? It's an investment. It's a long-term investment. It's a safe investment. It's either a place where they can safely park their money. They can't lose it. It can't be confiscated from them. Which is happening with this corruption thing. People are losing their assets. Yeah, they're losing their assets. They, They want to get, if it's a case of a tycoon, they want to get their money out of China. And this is a way to get their money out of China. At the same time, they want it to be an investment. They want to get some money back on it. And, and it's, it's still considered really a sexy investment. They can brag about it. I own a chateau. I was just told about some, a group of Chinese billionaires who had arrived in August. They had a bet who was going to buy the most beautiful chateau in France. And they had arrived on their private jets and we're actively shopping for chateaus. This happens all the time. But it's to the point now where it's not even a news story for me, frankly. Like that's not even going on the that's wire. Not a story. That's it's not a story. And I just had a press release, maybe it was last week, about a company saying they'd sold the 120th chateau to Chinese investors. It was not a story for me to do. A couple of years ago, that would have been a news story. 
Now I'm, I'm looking, I go, okay, so wait, so they're investors who don't want to disclose their names. It's a holding company in Hong Kong. Uh, and it's an obscure chateau. That's not a story. It's not a story anymore when a Chinese billionaire or mysterious holding group of investors buys a chateau in Bordeaux. So it's that banal. So yeah, it's it's an anecdote, be it it's and it's a trend, but it really is happening. And do I don't think it's going to slow down either. I don't think it's stopped. I think it's part of life in Bordeaux. I think it's just now a, a fact. Um, but it's not news. It's not news. And in terms of the counterfeiting, I recently wrote a story about a report that was written by trade advisors, foreign trade advisors, that had been hushed up in 2013. It was just now quietly released. They contacted me. And ironically, I had contacted them in 2013 when I was researching the book. And they never responded, and now I know why. It's because the whole thing was, was hushed up by Bordeaux and the Minister of Agriculture. They didn't want the information made public. And what the report had found, which has been updated last June, is that for every bottle of real French wine in China, there's at least one fake French wine. And why is it so much? I mean, why are there so many counterfeits? Because it's an industrial production. It's not some little bodily line. Not there are there are of course those little bodily lines. You hear read about them like at the chicken farm turned into a counterfeiting operation. But no, it's an industrial production. There are sophisticated bodily lines set up. So of course the the amount of fake wine is going to be enormous. But that's not just French wine, it's not just Bordeaux. That's everybody who is sending their wine to China is vulnerable to that. Why aren't the Chinese consumers more conscious of this? Why do they not seem to mind so much that there's so much counterfeits around? I mean, I assume that there's only counterfeits because there's a market for counterfeits, is what I'm saying. What I don't understand is, it's so common, why do they allow it to be so common? I mean, what is allowing this to happen? Well, I think there's a couple things. I don't think the consumers allow it to happen, but it's only very recently the consumers have any I would, I would even hesitate to say power at this point because I don't think they have power. But they do have a voice because of the internet. And news gets out much easier now. Whereas before, you, you didn't have news going from region to region in China. And people didn't travel within China either. So the consumers were particularly vulnerable. And they didn't know. They didn't understand what they were drinking until someone was you know, poisoned or something. And the government is very concerned about counterfeiting when there's a health risk. If there isn't a health risk, they really apparently are not concerned. It's not, it's a, it's a slap on the wrist. I've talked to Chinese producers who explained to me that for every, say, 50 cases they sell to a sub-distributor, the sub-distributor sells 100. Right. Okay. They're counterfeiting their wine. And they, they get some papers for a small quantity and then use those to... Document well, a larger well, they, quantity they, of something they else. They fake the label and everything. They fake the capsule, everything. They just fake the bottle. And so then say the wine, and this is a Chinese wine producer, fine wine producer. So then it has to pay the cops to investigate it who don't do anything. It's, it's a slap on the wrist. Nothing's going to happen to these people. And as long as the consumers are gullible, they don't know enough about the product. So it's a knowledge thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely, it's knowledge and it's awareness. It's, it's information be made public. But it's not a face thing. Like, I give you a gift. You say, huh, 
I think that's probably fake. But you don't want to say it publicly because you don't want to hurt my face. You know what I mean? Is that part of it? Like it's so much of it's a gift economy? Well, no. But one thing that's hurt Bordeaux, according to these advisors to the Trade Commission, is that people are afraid these expensive Bordeaux wines are fake. And so they don't want to give it as a gift because, God forbid, what if it's a fake? Wouldn't the government at that point, wouldn't they look at that as not helping joint ventures and investment and say, like, well, maybe we should stamp that out? Well, it's interesting you say that because these trade advisors, that was one of the points of their whole report. The report was not to sink Bordeaux wine or to to make everyone afraid of fake wine and, and destroy borders or anybody else's market in China. The point was to help put pressure as well on government officials in China. They, they had actually a really great approach of sort of federated approach that could have benefited American vintners, everyone. Similar to the way the auto parts industry is able to track and trace auto parts and that counterfeiting. And they wanted to share that, have a shared database, highly protected, obviously, that all French vintners could use, all European vintners, potentially all vintners everywhere could use, to help really put an end to counterfeiting. That was part of the project. Using the latest in technology that actually works that can't because of course the counterfeiters counterfeit the technology the bubble tags and all that kind of stuff you it really has to be an integrated approach but part of it also was diplomacy putting pressure on the chinese government but it, that takes okay, the china is the rising power today it, it's kind of hard to put pressure on them they're in the power position, aren't they? It You're takes, saying they're not asking for joint ventures anymore. The foreign producers are asking for joint ventures. I mean, we're on our knees, aren't we, a lot of the time, wanting consumers, to, Chinese consumers to buy our products. It really takes, in the case of the French, it does, it's not just the French. It's got to be all of Europe who asks for this, you know, just the way America can ask for it or all of North America. So it, it's going to take a lot of news stories. It's going to take a lot of public awareness. The problem with the wine business, the beauty of it, and the problem is you've got hundreds, thousands of producers, little tiny voices, and you know Beijing isn't going to listen to all those little voices. It's got to be one voice. You know, everyone come together in a voice saying, this is what we need if we're going to keep doing business with you, because China wants to do business. They want our wines to come into the country. Eventually, they're going to want us to drink their wines. They want to do business. And so counterfeiting has to be on the negotiating table during trade talks. That's the only solution. So you indicated who were the people who really set the Bordeaux market in motion at a key time when Bordeaux really needed China and China was really more interested in Bordeaux. But who are the movers and shakers in the wine industry at this moment? Now it's six years on from that, seven years on from that. Who's really making the important moves in China with wine today? Actually, some of the people still in the book, <laughs> they're still the ones, because they've weathered the storm. ASC is a great example. There are other ones as well. But a lot of the ones who kind of had this boom, you might say, they've gone by the wayside. All those people sort of fled. But it's still some of the same people who've always been there. Osino is, a, is another great example. I don't put them in the book, even though they've been incredibly important for building the, the market in China, because... They are, the, the magazine I wrote for is owned by them. I they see. have a publishing arm because when they first started bringing wine into China, there was no wine magazine. So they created a wine magazine. They created a publishing house and a wine education program. And they 
publish this magazine four times a year. So because I didn't want anyone to read any kind of conflict of interest into it, I don't discuss them in the book, but Osino has been incredibly influential. They have uh, a franchises all over China. They have a great wine education program. They're highly, highly respected, but they're, they're still there. They've weathered the storm. ASC has still weathered the storm. So it's really the people who, some of the pioneers are the ones who are there who are influential today because they have the distribution networks. A lot of the people, what happened was people jumped on wine thinking, oh, I can sell wine the way I sell auto parts and electronics. But no, that is not the way wine is sold. And they didn't have the distribution. They didn't understand. They didn't have the storage. There was all sorts of problems, infrastructural problems. And now it's, it's a lot of the same people, but it's also people selling through the internet. Um, oh, Torres China has also been there from the beginning, is doing really well. Um, the ones who are able to sell on Tmall, you know, Alibaba, that's becoming very influential. So the steady players. That's the steady players, yeah. So what you're saying is that irrational exuberance was really driven by speculation from people who had no experience in the wine business. And Correct. that's why when we said, oh, they're not very smart about wine, like from here, from in this fact, they very smart about In fact, wine. they weren't very smart about wine. But it's not that the Chinese aren't smart about wine. It's that these people came from all kinds of different backgrounds to try to make a quick buck. Exactly. And also they thought that they could fool their consumers. They really, they said, oh, they find some little Bordeaux and they'd, say, and they'd sell it for, you know, a hundred times the price. It's just find some obscure wine that no one's ever heard of. It might've been, you know, the second or third label from an estate or something like that, but also just some little tiny regular Bordeaux Appalachian wine and sell it for a huge amount of money. And they would tell people, oh, this is a really, really expensive Bordeaux. This is, I've got the exclusive on this and this is a great gift. Well, imagine, imagine what happens when that entrepreneur or official has given that as a gift and finds out later that it's a, it's not even worth five euros, you know, $10. That's a loss of faith. And they've given it as this very special gift no, I mean, gifts have, have to cost a certain amount of money according to the prestige of the person you're giving it to. Now, I, was, I was talking to this guy in, in Paris who's highly connected to the Bank of China, and he buys all sorts of different things, authentic things that he can sell in China for gifts. And, you know, there's a limited number of Hermes bags the Chinese can buy, right? And he asked me if I would buy a few for him because he needed them for the wives of some government officials. And in fact, I didn't do it, but I was very curious. I was like, well, why don't you, you know, Gucci, whatever, go buy some of the other ones. I said, you can't give the governor's wife anything but Hermes. And it has to, they know what it costs. They know the cost of these gifts. And it has to cost a certain amount of money. You know, this, so imagine the embarrassment for a lot of these people when they found out that they'd been hoodwinked. So they were being taken advantage of by these Chinese traders. It wasn't necessarily Bordeaux selling them overpriced wine. It was Chinese people buying cheap Bordeaux and selling it for a very, very high markup. I mean, a, a wine that's worth, say, $5, $10, sold for $100, you know, maybe more. And that's, that's hugely embarrassing. But now there's this price transparency on the internet, and it's really hard to fool people now. And what about the development of domestic Chinese media? How has that changed in the conversation about wine? I mean, are there more publications? Are there more 
domestic critics? Are there powerful and influential voices within China that are moving some of that? Because when you say to me, it has to be Hermes, that sounds like if that changes one day, that's going to be a huge thing. Like a lot of money is going to move because it moves. And in this country, that happened with critics, right? Critics said, no, this wine, and everyone went that way. Is that going to happen in China? Is the taste hurricane going to move on? Well, so far, there isn't a wine spectator or Robert Parker or Jancis Robinson of China. You know, Domestic that, person. Yeah, no, no. There isn't. And partly because they look for validation from countries and people they consider experts that are internationally acknowledged experts. That's very, very important to them. And because they're not, they're still, they're still gaining confidence themselves. So there are lots of blogs. There's, um, there's some great websites now, uh, wine education websites that have hundreds of thousands of followers, internet TV videos about it. So it's growing, 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 but there's nobody who's dominating that scene yet, but there will, eventually there'll be somebody, it'll, you know, somebody will rise to the top. But right now, it's just, it's huge, huge, the amount of wine education available online. And forums, people, sometimes it's looking for prices or information about a winery. It's about visiting wineries, an incredible amount of information. There's no real recognized Chinese specialist. So there's a lot of media, but there's still a need for foreign affirmation. There's still a need for someone else that really knows to come in and say, yes, you made the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, there's Decanter in China. Decanter has their Chinese version. Uh, Revue de Vente de France also has a Chinese version. It's coming. It's coming. The, The fact that those media have invested in the Chinese market is fantastic. And eventually there will be a I don't know. And I'm just sort of thinking about it. Will there be a Chinese, a fully Chinese magazine that will be on the, the stature of Decanter or Wine Spectator, Review de Van de France, without any association with the West? Because again, look, they've looked for affirmation. Decanter, China is Decanter. Review de Van de France is Review de Van de France. Right. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some time because again, they want the affirmation and they want to believe that they're not being lied to. Lot of other, they're so used to being lied to, and there's you know, it's, it's just there's this general assumption that you're going to be cheated and lied to, and that there'll be fakes. There's a certain cynicism already amongst oh, the consumer base, very, they're very cynical, and with good reason. I mean, this stuff does happen. That's, I think, what they're so good at searching out information. These amateur detectives, I mean, they're really good at it because they don't want to be cheated or lied to, and that's I understand that. So it'll be whatever magazine is able to come across as establish a reputation for being independent and reliable and validating the Chinese palate. But I mean, isn't that exactly what Parker did for the Americans? You know, he crusaded for consumer choice. He seemed independent. He didn't have any links to the trade. He searched out the facts when that was important to find out the details. You know, that happened here. Doesn't that almost sound like what's going to happen there or no, it's just not ready or it's just not going to happen. I think, well, I am always hesitate to predict anything in China because one thing I learned through my book is that the minute you predict something, <laughs> the opposite happens. But I personally think, and I've believed this since 2010, China needs to 
have its own wine authority. You know, it needs to have its own, more than one. It needs to have a few wine experts that are respected and looked up to and said, these are the people who really, that Chinese consumers can look to. I like to see that happen. I don't see it happening right now. In that particular environment of China, mm-hmm. would it make sense that what would develop would be a state-sponsored wine critic? That essentially someone from the government would say, yeah, you know what you should all drink is this stuff over here. I mean, in a place where you have state-sponsored media, is it really yeah. such a, a stretch to say, yeah, you know, this is really good? I just don't think they have enough respect for their own wine experts. For instance, the newspaper in Bordeaux, the Sud-West, the China, I think it was the China Daily News, the big state newspaper, right, now publishes stories from the Sud-West newspaper about wine. They came right to Bordeaux for news, and they translated. They don't, I'm sure they have very able-bodied journalists who can handle it themselves and make a name for themselves as wine columnists. But no, they would rather buy the stories from a Bordeaux newspaper. Syndicated. So to me, that says the state is not investing in wine journalists. You know, why wouldn't they? It seems like they would take the state media and they say, okay, great, let's pick some, maybe a sommelier or whoever. We'll pick some people who've got the knowledge and the drive to do this. There's certainly plenty of them in China. And let's set them up as wine stars. Yeah, like the poet laureate, except it's, it's wine. You know, yeah, this is yeah. the wine laureate for China, right. you know? And, and they have competitions for sommeliers. They're, they really get behind all these competitions that they have. But no, I don't see, I am not aware of any state-sponsored move to create a big big Chinese critic or magazine or anything or a newspaper column. No, the fact that they're in buying stories from the French media tells me that they still have more faith in foreign media and critics than their own. So what about the role of Robert Parker then? Because Mm -hmm. when I read your book, I I was Mm -hmm. sort of struck by how much he's really not in it at all. And I don't recall a lot of books that are focused on Bordeaux or the Bordeaux market that don't really bring him up. I mean, love him or hate him or agree or disagree, it seems like he's part of that landscape when it comes to Bordeaux. But I didn't find him in your book very much at all. Yeah, he's, he's barely in the book. That was a decision I made early on with the publisher. Mainly because we have we had such a big topic, and there were a lot of things that didn't go into the book. And I felt like if I was going to deal with Robert Parker, I had to deal with media as a whole, which included Review de la France, Decanter, and it just became this whole other subject. And my, it's just like I don't really talk about the chateaus individually. The story is already quite complex. I already had to eliminate a lot of people, or at least not name them, not because they weren't That's important. a very Chinese thing to do, you know, eliminate them. <laughs> <coughs> I don't eliminate them. Still, try try to make this story a little more clear by eliminating a few people. Get no, the message across, you know. No, they're, they're not eliminated. They're still living and breathing and working and going about their lives happily. But they, they were eliminated from the narrative of the book, their names, were not used, not because they weren't important and because they didn't contribute to the story in some way, whether research or the work they did in building the Chinese market. It's just that we had so many characters in the book, and it was hard to follow. And we have a lot of people from, we have different nationalities, and the feeling was that the American audience needed it simplified. We needed fewer people for them to follow. It was already asking a lot 
You've got people in London and Bordeaux and Hong Kong and mainland China, a few in the States. It was just too many people. It was a complex weave. Yeah, a very complex weave. And the media was, I also felt like if here I write for Wine Spectator, I'm a contributing editor at Wine Spectator. And if I write something about Robert Parker, no matter how balanced I am in my approach, people are always going to interpret it through the prism of Wine Spectator. And it just seemed needless. I've interviewed Parker for when I worked for Agence France Presse. I've edited a couple stories with him. I got all of them just fine. I don't have any gripe with Robert Parker. Um, and certainly he's had a very interesting story. I've discussed China with him. So I... You know, when I first was cons- was thinking of the book, he was there, but so was Decanter, so was Revue de Vin de France. I know the publishers of Revue de Vin de France in China. I like them a lot. It feels a little strange. In fact, I think it's a little stranger that I don't have them in the book or Decanter in the book because they've really made a push into China. It was just a decision that we made to to simplify a very complex story. And it... You know, there was a chapter on leftover women that didn't go in the book as well. There what was, do you mean by that? It's, a, it's an official term for women who've reached 29, 30 and aren't married. It's too late. You're, you're done for. You're, you're not desirable anymore. And when, one thing I, I saw a lot that captured my attention in Bordeaux was the young women arriving, working in the wine trade. And a lot of these women were in their late 20s into their early 30s. And by that time, they were too old to be married, at least in the Chinese perspective. They'd had a lot of pressure from their families to get married. And they were finding opportunities in the wine business. I mean, they chose not to get married. They chose, many of them have chosen to stay in Bordeaux. And their careers in wine has been very liberating for them, but created some tension with their families. And as one young woman who it was in the book, um, explaining to me, she goes, how do you want us to have a conversation? Because my grandmother had bound feet. My mother barely survived the Cultural Revolution. She fought starvation. And she goes, now I have an apartment in Bordeaux. I go to Paris for the weekend. How do you want us to have a conversation between generations? And I think for Chinese women, the, the challenge is even greater than perhaps for Chinese men. And so I, I've gotten to know these young women in uh, quite a lot of them, because it's mostly Chinese women we have in coming to Bordeaux. And it's fascinating for me, but that didn't even go into the book. It's just, and, and it's definitely part of the story. But at some point, you just have to start weeding things out because the book will be 700 pages long and it'll be a, a doorstop instead of a book to read the weekend. You know, it's, it's just an editorial decision. So nothing against Robert Parker, and he certainly had an interesting influence in Asia, and I'm sure the wine advocate will continue to be influential. So something else that's influential in this country, and that you know also maybe wasn't a part of the narrative of the book, but I'd be mm-hmm. curious what you'd think, is yeah. you know, what's the role of the sommelier today in China? And who are they, and is it different in Hong Kong to mainland China? And what's the story with that? Well, that's an interesting question. I've met quite a few. It's definitely, well, I think the anti-corruption campaign has really put a dent in the career plan for sommeliers. I've met a few who've been in Bordeaux recently or the last couple of years looking for inexpensive Bordeaux because if they don't find it and get it on their wine list, they're out of a job. People were not ordering wine in restaurants anymore. And they had to provide 
inexpensive wines to drink. But that means also getting outside of Bordeaux. So they're going, it's a great job actually for the ones who get to travel because they go to lots of wine regions. They love it. They're very knowledgeable. They, they throw themselves into wine education, into different training programs available. Some of those training programs are from Bordeaux. They're wine school. They take it on the road. You know, they train people. And then there's WSIT, W-S-E-T, of course, in China. There's a sommelier school in Bordeaux that also has schools in China, and they do training programs. It's, uh, it's actually a fantastic career in China, but they have to have a very wide knowledge and be able to kind of shift with, when things shift, which can be very quickly in China, they have to be able to shift with that demand, like with the anti-corruption. The sudden, they went from needing classified gross, and they needed to know everything about classified gross so they could recommend it. So again, who's ever ordering doesn't lose face, and who feels confident ordering that wine. And now suddenly they've got to know about all these other regions. So it's a pretty demanding job. But no, I don't, I mentioned some sommeliers in the book, but it, it's not something. I was really dealing with the, the merchants, but sommeliers are very important for the wine trade in China because it's wine education kind of on the spot. And there's an incredible demand now for wine education in China, however people can get it. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to embarrass themselves. But they also just want to learn. Again, it strikes me as being very similar to Americans. They want to learn. They want a novelty wine. They want a discovery wine. The ones who are confident about buying wine want that new wine. And I think that's that's very American, that being adventuresome in wine. So again, that's what we were talking about earlier. That's a similarity with Americans. I, I actually think there could be a very strong dialogue between China and America on wine. I'm in France, so I'm not part of that dialogue, but I really see the potential there for it. I think there's a lot to, to share. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of common ground. Suzanne Mostisic saw a weave in China and it turned out to have the face of a dragon. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Suzanne Mostisic of Thirsty Dragon. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.